I haven't done this in a long time. Feels good? Yeah. Do you have one of these? I have eight. Eight? In successive sizes, so they oh, all really? make different. I have kinds. several. I have one that somebody brought me from in India. Mm -hmm. Good morning. Welcome to Ordinary Life live stream. Um, again, if you have or you know of someone who has a need that would be appropriate for our church to deal with, please let us know. You can contact St. Paul's through the St. Paul's website by calling 713-528-0527, by contacting me through the Ordinary Life website. Uh, just we want to know what's going on with you and, and how you are, are doing. Uh, as always, the Emergency Aid Coalition has needs for things like peanut butter, uh, cans of food that you can pop the tops on, uh, fresh vegetables and fruit always. So if you have anything like that, you live in this area, the EAC is located across Fannin from the St. Paul's, well, it's on the St. Paul's campus. And as usual, thanks to Olivia and William and Tim and John, and special thanks this week to Richard Wingfield, who took a lot, a lot of time to uh, help me out on technical stuff. And I took the slide out that said, Bill, <laughs> please don't screw this one up. You I did? did? Last week. That was, that was and if you were prompted, uh, and we're going to contact you this week about a special uh, opportunity to give money. I'll let you know about that through the email list. And if you're not on the email list, just go to the Ordinary Life website and you can sign up to get emails of the previews that uh, we write about this class and also the summaries that are sent out every, every Tuesday morning. So I just want you to know that no matter who you are, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. There, there is a, a narrative poem that's been making the rounds, in case you haven't heard it, seen it. It was written by the Belfast, Ireland COVID response team, and I, I would like to read it to you. When you go out and see the empty streets, the empty stadiums, the empty train platforms, don't say to yourself, it looks like the end of the world. What you're seeing is love in action. What you're seeing in that negative space is how much we do care for each other, for our grandparents, our parents, our brothers and sisters, for people we will never meet. People will lose their jobs over this, some will lose their businesses, and some will lose their lives. All the more reason to take a moment when you're out on your walk or on your way to the store or just watching the news to look into all that emptiness and marvel at all that love. Let it fill you and sustain you. It isn't the end of the world. It's the most remarkable act of global solidarity we may ever witness. Mm. I saw a great cartoon also this week that says um, the building is closed, but the church is open. <laughs> the world is our church right now. The world is our church. Mm -hmm. Good um, good John Wesley quote, the world is my parish. Mm -hmm. And I also was, had uh, called a man this week um, because I wear these T-shirts. One you'll see. <laughs> You're going to show it today? Yeah, I'm going to show one today. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, oh, I, oh, I thought I was uh, picturing like a Superman no, thing. No, no, no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Any, anyway, what St. 
what St. Francis says is uh, always preach the gospel, uh -huh. sometimes use words. Right. So, yeah. I have had, and Holly was not expecting for me to say this, but I edited it kind of at the, at the last minute. Um, <laughs> I have had in the last two or three weeks, a lot of people respond to what we're doing mm. with a mixture of surprise and gratitude. Mm. Mm. Not anything negative, mm. I'm very grateful to say. <laughs> but people, you know, the, left. the typical, the yeah. typical, I can't believe you're teaching this in a church. Do they know what you're doing? That sort of thing. Mm. And so much gratitude that we are doing what we're doing. And uh, Holly is here because um, she is the resident expert in evolutionary cosmology. Okay. <laughs> I, I suddenly feel. Well, you're getting your PhD. Yes, I am. <laughs> so you're, you should, you should yeah. be an expert. I <laughs> and and uh, somebody called to mind in a group meeting I was in this week about how uh, they were very pleased about the emphasis that we've been in for the last two years, and which I'm calling between the no longer and the not yet. Mm -hmm. And we're in this period because of evolutionary cosmology. Absolutely. So there's all the things that are, are coming right. down. Just this morning, I got a, on one of the news feeds, I get a shot of a, a, a birth of a star from the Hubble telescope. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there, it's, gosh, that's one of the most stunning visuals, that the, the image of a star being born, of the nebula, where they, the nurseries where they come from. They're just some of the, I actually, there's one coming. <laughs> so what I, what I want to say is that we're still in this emphasis on between the no longer and the not yet, but we're sort of narrowing it down right now to talk about what it means to have an adult faith, and because we need more adults in the room, oh yeah, in our culture, yeah, in our politics. At least those of us who are meant to be adults need to become adults. Right. Right. Our kids don't need to become adults yet. No. <laughs> Yeah. And, and when you hear some of what we talk about, you've, you have an opportunity, when any of us hear this, we have an opportunity to um, refuse to accept the evidence and go blindly forward. This is what fundamentalists do. This is intellectually dishonest. Or we can abandon the faith that we have been given because it proves inadequate. When somebody hears that, you will, as you will today, that there's not a old man in the sky. Mm -hmm. They say, well, everything I've been taught is not true, so to heck with the church. I don't want anything else to do with it. That's intellectual laziness. Mm -hmm. Or the third choice, which is the one that we're trying to embody, is accept the new knowledge and use it to develop a more mature understanding. Mm -hmm. And in that regard, uh, I have been recommending this book, Daramud or Muchu's book, When the Disciple Comes of Age. Mm -hmm. I finished it. I'm proud of you. I haven't finished it yet. Do you like it? So far, yeah. Yes. But this is exactly what he's talking about. It's about being an adult, what right. it means to be a mature person. Mm -hmm. And in the book, uh, he says people have asked the question. Um, I want to see that I get it right. Um, 
did Jesus succeed? And he says, perhaps the more relevant question is, have we allowed him to mm-hmm. succeed? Mm-hmm. Because we put a lot of barriers in the way of Jesus' message. And one of them that we have been focusing in on for the last two weeks and that we will do again next week mm-hmm. is uh, the, the barrier of patriarchy. Yeah. Well, this, it actually something occurs to me, and this is, this is for George Schroth, <laughs> uh, if that's part of what Nietzsche meant by... <laughs> Um, did I do that right? By God is dead. We must allow for the out there sky God to be dead so that we can internalize spirit, wisdom, adulthood in our own selves, become our own prophets, or I don't, prophets is a little broad, but our own teachers. Both Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Rudolf Bultmann, who have enjoyed a renewed popularity in recent years, both said the same thing when I was reading them in seminary in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were talking about Bultmann, who uh, main thing was demythologizing scripture. You and I would use the phrase deconstructing now, but uh, what he was saying, uh, and he said it very plainly, he said, if somebody walks away from the Christian message, let it not be because they stumbled over teachings about a three-storied universe. Right. But let it be because they met the real challenge of what the message is, which is inclusivity Mm -hmm. and forgiveness and in a culture that thrives on competitiveness and judgmentalism, this is a hard message to hear. Absolutely. So this is the T-shirt um, about. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, I wear this sometimes. That it's uh, catch up with Jesus. Let us praise and relish Him because He loves me from my head to my toes. <laughs> the bad T-shirt. So um, we are, we are in Amuchi's words, quote trying to unravel and discard the barriers that we have put in the way, not only of our understanding of Jesus, but um, also our understandings of um, two things today, our understanding of God and our understanding of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, we are t- calling this talk today the Feminine Face of Sacred Mystery. And, you know, Holly, I think we could go on this topic for weeks. It, it, it is a lot deeper than we can allow time for. Because it's sort of one of these threads that, have, that, 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 that pulsates through history but doesn't necessarily get pulled on enough. So, yeah, we can pull on that thread for quite some time. Let's do. <laughs> Challenge. <laughs> one of the things that attracted people to Jesus uh, was that he was a healer. Mm-hmm. And um, I mentioned last week a council that the Roman Catholic Church held in the middle of the 16th century called the Council of Trent. It was held in northern Italy in a place called Trent, Trento. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've been privileged to visit that site. And I have referred to this as the church's longest committee meeting, the Council <laughs> of Trent. Uh, and, and by the way, if you look at the Council of Trent up on Google, you'll run across this particular picture. Uh, this is actually a photograph that I took in Trento of a painting of the Council of Trent. 
and you can see how it's all lined up in a very legalistic structural way. I have no doubt that it that it lo looks something like this in the 16th century. Mm -hmm. This council, which was a reaction to the Protestant Reformation, mm -hmm. caused so much damage to the church. Mm -hmm. Because growing out of this council was putting in place a white male authoritarian clergy, yeah. <clears throat> epitomized in the Pope, mm -hmm. who was not only white and male, but also celibate. Mm -hmm. Get rid of that sexual mm -hmm. feminine stuff that we're going to talk about. It also made a huge division between clergy and laity. Mm -hmm. It robbed the laity of doing any serious biblical scholarship or biblical work mm -hmm. uh, and created literalism, which has led to fundamentalism. Uh, it created a kind of really squishy mysticism. It was out of this um, period of time that praying the rosary became popular. Mm. And it's almost a superstition. Interesting. Uh, that, that sort of... So is that what you mean by squishy mysticism? Squishy mysticism. Sort of more super, superstitious right, right. than... Right, superstition, you know. Yeah. You just pray the rosary ten times and right. everything will be right. okay. Yeah. I think a rosary is a great teaching tool of sure. uh, the this <coughs> the the Jesus story. I started to say the myth of the Jesus story, but I grew up in a context where there was intense negativity toward Roman Catholic Catholicism, <coughs> and um, I can remember people in the church where I grew up, and this is what I was taught: we don't need anybody to interpret the Bible for us, we can interpret the Bible for ourselves. Mm -hmm. Hmm. And even as an adolescent, I could see the fallacy in that. <laughs> because, and I don't mean this in any erudite way, but it takes some fairly sophisticated scholarship to interpret a document that's between two and 4,000 years old. Sure. Yeah. You can't just words don't mean what they meant. Think that yeah. you have it. That's right. <clears throat> I think the quote that I love the most. I've used this a lot. I used to have this in the announcement slides uh, mm -hmm. here in in class. My favorite quote by John Dominic Crossan, or one of my favorite quotes by him. My point once again is not that those ancient people told literal stories and we are now smart enough to take them symbolically. But they told symbolic stories, and we are now dumb enough to take them literally. Right. The miracle stories, the healing stories of Jesus are metaphors. Mm -hmm. They are metaphors about two primary things today. How when people's eyesight is restored, they're able to see the truth for what it is, and how when they are healed of anything that cripples them, they are able to move more fully into what Jesus, what we've come to know as the kingdom of God, but we're going to give it another name before we're, we're done today. <laughs> yeah. So let's see. I think that's... <coughs> that's, pardon me, pretty much what I want to say about, about yeah. healing. So what we want to focus on today is healing our images of God and healing the image that we have of ourselves. Yeah. 
Well, it, two things struck me as you were talking. Number one, one of my favorite podcasts is Krista Tippett's On Being. And she interviews, as you know, many types of thinkers, poets, philosophers, um, physicists. And her, her starting question is always, what was the faith tradition of your childhood? And how does it or doesn't it inform you today? And I haven't listened to all of the podcasts, but I'm always struck by um, the fact that many of her guests have at some point left the tradition of their childhood and then midlife come back to it with a new awareness. So it kind of points at this idea that you were talking about that we have to, we can't abandon all of the teachings. We can't just take them for granted or literally, but we must come at them with new eyes. And that applies, I think, to any faith tradition. And I'm, I'm just always struck by, by that response that people have left and come back. And that's, to me, the definition of being born again, is coming back with new, new eyes. As you write, mm -hmm. like not a literal I was blind and now I see, but a, um, oh, I was a bit blind. I was a child and now I'm growing up. <laughs> yeah, and um, I think that one of the, the thrust of Ormuch's book is, um, when you become an adult, you put away childish things. Right. And beliefs and superstition are childish. Yes. Yeah. Unless it's baseball, in which case, wear the same underwear for seven days in a row and all of that. <laughs> all the things we believe about that stuff goes out the window when your favorite team is on the line. But that's not an issue right now. We have no baseball. Anyways, one of the damaging things, I think, to healing um, healing Jesus, if you will, or healing ourselves is that idea, uh-oh, <laughs> you got some alerts here, this idea that fundamentalism and evangelical Christianity has upheld for so long in the patriarchal religion is um, by policing women's bodies, policing women's roles in the family or in the social context, policing even what can be worn, or what can't be worn, how much of our bodies have to be covered, how much of our faces have to be covered, et cetera. The, um, you've heard of the term complementarianism, mm -hmm. where the, the, the woman or the wife is literally the complement to the man, not her own entity, but the complement to the man. And this is an in incredibly damaging block to healing that, um, to, to consider, you know, well, a little bit over half of our population just a complement to the other half, as opposed to its own, our own being, our own fullness. That demographic yeah. is growing in our culture. Well, there was an interesting article, I think Josh shared it with you, how complementarianism won this election. This idea of, um, I, just, I just do what my husband does, or I just vote how my partner does, right? So, you know, this, it has also, and this is, uh, needs a lot more unpacking, it's permitted what is called rape culture, that the woman as a passive sort of entity is somehow also belonged to or deserving of abuse, belittlement, or assault. And I think, you know, anything that sort of perpetuates a non-being someone being a non-being, we, we did that with um, African slaves, and then as, they, as that became the culture of African Americans, we 
we non-beinged them. We, we made them non-people. And that's you know, the same thing, I think, with the patriarchy and the church is that we've kind of made the feminine a non-entity. But as we know, it's an entity. <laughs> so, you know, I don't think that was Jesus's vision to render women silent or to render oh, them voiceless. Not. Yeah, there's, um, you know, his, well, I think hopefully talk about this at some point, especially next week, but his whole biblical story is bookended by the feminine, right? Mm -hmm. the, the Virgin Mary, um, again, a lot to talk about, about the Virgin horror dynamic, but, there, but the Virgin Mary, you'll talk later about the, the, prophets or the followers that he had that were women, Mary Magdalene, and, you know, the, the uncovering of the tomb was, it was a woman. And I'm just recently in a course on mysticism, you can go to the next slide, was with, with Cleve Tinsley, who I just adore. Um, we went through this verse in the Bible, and it's sometimes hard to cherry pick verses from the Bible, but it was sort of meant to look at how, how can we see this through sort of mystical eyes? So the verses behind me from Luke um, 38 through 40, and it's the story of Mary and Martha, how Jesus is traveling through. He comes to the home, and he, he, he enters a village and comes to the home of a woman named Martha, who welcomed him, made him feel quite at home, and she has a sister named Mary, who sat before the master, hanging on every word he says. But Martha was, was pulled away for all she had to do in the kitchen. Later, she steps in, interrupting them. Master, don't you care that my sister has abandoned the kitchen to me? Tell her to lend me a hand. The master says, Martha, dear Martha, you're fussing far too much and getting yourself worked up over nothing. One thing only is essential, and Mary has chosen it. It's the main course and won't be taken from her. He doesn't say, she's worshiping at my feet. Leave her alone. He, I, I, you know, there's one way to look at that, and I think I've heard this verse in the context of women belong at the feet of man or serving man, <laughs> right? But I think the other context is women, and this is where Mary is a beacon of sort of just being, women too can just be who they are. Mary's not fretting. Martha, you're fretting. You don't have to try to impress me. You don't have to try and serve me. You don't have to try and earn my favor. Just be. Just be as you are. And that, to me, was a sort of new, new thought about this verse. I don't, I'd love to hear what your, your thoughts might be, <laughs> if you have any. Well, I agree with you. Yeah. I agree with you. Yeah. I mean, uh, although now we know a lot more about the context in yes. which Jesus actually did his work, but in, in uh, traditional Judaism, it would have been the men mm -hmm. who associated with synagogue-style teaching, right. rabbinic teaching, and women would have been uh, away. And Jesus violated that. Mm -hmm. uh, as a matter of fact, probably the closest people to Jesus were women, mm -hmm. not men. Mm -hmm. And we talk about that. Um, th that got written out of the story. Mm -hmm. uh, sometime around 60 to 80. Mm -hmm. um, but even going forward into um, several centuries after that, women played key role. Right. And even to this day, um, if it weren't for the role of faithful women in most of organized religion, the church would falter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Women have carried the church yeah. all, the, all the way through. Faithful uh, women 
Yeah. It's a very, you know, vessel or container or womb-like image, right? Mm -hmm. Sort of containing, mm -hmm. containing a message or containing love. Um, mm -hmm. It's a beautiful image. So um, I have, I've never met. Um, I'm sure there are exceptions to this, but in my work as a as a spiritual director and as a psychotherapist. I've never met anyone who did not have some received wound about who they were. Mm -hmm. uh, they're bound up with some sense of shame or guilt. And so we need that to be healed in us. It, if we hold it that we are made in the image of God, we've nothing to be ashamed of, right? right? Or guilty about. Um, and, and I've also never met anybody who did not have a, a damaged understanding of God. Can I pause you for one second? Sure. I'm just reading Teilhard de Chardin's Human Energy, and um, you said there's not a single person who isn't born in the image of God. He writes that we are born in the image of the universe. Mm -hmm. And to not see the universe in ourselves and in each other is to commit it to an automatic death, to commit it to an inevitable end. So the more we can widen that image, right, of God, of universe, of ourselves and others, the more that we are expanding not only the heart wisdom, but also the universe itself. Well, God is all that is, right? Right, right. So right. we, yeah. um, I take that back immediately after saying it because, <laughs> it, it, because it appears that we are, competent of being able to define and describe God. Yes. And we can't. That's right. So it's all that is, you figure out what that means. <laughs> sort of. Yeah. 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 Well, I'm, I'm willing to bet that if you say the word God to yes. most people, what comes to mind? Yeah. In this very, on this very trip in Italy where we went to uh, Trent, uh, word got out that I was uh, a clergy. I hate it when that happens. <laughs> I don't like that for a lot of reasons, but um, the woman who was our guide on this trip said, um, I'll, I'll show you later uh, an image of God. I know what God looks like. Mm -hmm. And so we were taken to this grotto, and this is God. Huh. This is the image that most people, I think, have of God as a white, bearded, Santa Claus-like yeah. Man yes. in the sky, flanked by subservient women. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> this God is mostly angry. Yeah. And demanding. Yes. And who would want a God like that? And the growing into adulthood that Holly and I are talking about is not something that happens automatically. It requires um, growth both in religious literacy and spiritual literacy. Religious literacy involves increasing our base of knowledge and information by reading something like Ormuchu's book, mm -hmm. which is mind-boggling. And it's not that difficult a book to read, but very, very informative. Um, Spiritual literacy has to do with our spiritual practices, and um, I have mentioned that before, haven't I? Um, you know, I, I, I'll have to think about it and check my notes from years past. Okay. <laughs> so we, we, uh, we, we have a Christian religion 
that has been woefully misinformed about the role of the feminine. Yeah. And I'll give you just one example, and this I got from reading Arutu's book, and that is, um, and I think this never occurred to me in the way that he put it. The book of Romans was delivered to the church in Rome by a woman hmm. whose name was Phoebe. Paul asked Phoebe, to take the letter to the church. Now, if she did this, I mean, she did this, but she was not just a letter carrier. She didn't work for the UPS and say, here's your letter. Right. She would have to have the competency to read it mm -hmm. in several different venues. She would have to have the competency to interpret it. Hmm. She would have to have the competency to answer questions about it. She would have to be seen as a person of authority mm -hmm. to do that. Mm -hmm. We didn't get taught this stuff in Sunday school. Right, no. Yeah, it was more probably a servant took it to, you know, the, to Rome rather than someone trusted. The, the story that, that you referred to a minute ago about Mary who washes the feet of Jesus. Right. Probably his closest disciple. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, and she, um, she reveals that she had understood the import of his message more than any of the guys around him. She heard what he said about, you know what I'm doing is going to get me killed. Mm. And that's why she did what she did. Mm -hmm. The guys were all in denial. No, this isn't going to happen. This so at the time of the crucifixion, the guys all ran away. It was the women who stayed. Mm. And at the time of resurrection, it was the it women, was the women who first apprehended, understood, were given the message to go teach this to other people. Just it was not the guys who did that. The courage it takes to be with someone in life and in death, right? And the coming into the world and going out of the world. Not it, this, that, There's courage in that. So yeah. it's interesting to me that you, that the women were the ones that were there. Um, earlier this year, and much against my preferences, but I had to do it, I attended a sex ethics seminar that was in this very space. Mm. This room was packed. <laughs> well, anytime you talk about sex, it's going to... Well, At it church. was it was it, no, it was required. Oh, okay. If you work for a Methodist church uh -huh. in any capacity of ministry, of pastoral ministry or teaching ministry or anything like that, you have had to attend the sex ethics seminar. Yeah. And the reason for that is all the sexual abuse that goes on in, on the part of some clergy in, right. in 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 the church. And I don't have accurate statistics about this, but I think they're all male clergy who do this. It's mostly males who commit acts of sexual abuse, just in general. So as part of this similar, yeah. Have you seen this? Well, you've Did read I share it. this with you? Yeah. Okay. It's a little. As part of this seminar, they had these Methodist clergy, males, mm -hmm. read out loud comments that female clergy have heard over the years. Mm -hmm. Now, we've not ordained women to ministry for that long, but these are some of the comments. I can't concentrate on your sermon because you're so pretty. You're looking fat. Now, these are comments that you would never hear said to a male. 
Mm -hmm. Hi, honey, how's my girlfriend? Uh, really, you did a good job, but I think scripture is more meaningful if read with a male voice. <laughs> I knew we were in trouble with the conference and thought the worst they could send us would be a black female Yankee. At least you're not all of that. Wow. You're going to hell, you know. God does not permit women to preach. That's in the Bible. And I would point out, so is stoning your children if they disobey you, right. but we don't do that. You don't pray as well as our former pastor, but you sure are prettier. I keep picturing you naked under your robe. <laughs> and the worst one for me, well, it, it, this is the worst one. It's hard for me to concentrate during Holy Communion because when you say, this is my body given for you, I keep thinking about your body, not Christ's body. I usually don't say this to a minister, but you're really cute. I'm so uncomfortable right now. It's just astounding. And I mean, not in this role, in this way, have things, these words been said exactly to me, but things like this have been said to me over the course of my you know, adult profession and, and life. Just little snippets like that. I it's would be willing so, to bet that yeah. you get different responses to our teaching or your teaching in here than I do. I would bet so. And don't, yeah. I'm not going to ask you to enumerate what those are, <laughs> but I, I would be willing <laughs> yeah. to, to yeah. bet that. Yeah. And, you know, I've been guilty of it myself. I think I shared with you, uh, we went to a ROAR conference uh, a number of years ago where uh, Rob Bell was the featured speaker. Mm -hmm. And um, this is not a class about my, my uh, things about Rob Bell. I, I used to be addicted to listening to Rob Bell's podcast. I think he's a really great biblical scholar, and he did a wonderful job. He wrote, a, he wrote several books that were very good. Uh, well, he's also a bit of an, of an apologist as an evangelical, yeah, right? And yeah. saying, I upheld these beliefs, and didn't his son come out as gay or somebody close to him came well, out as gay and that's sort of what got Rob Bell into huge trouble was that he wrote a book called Love Wins right. in which he said nobody goes to hell yeah. and that got him yeah. fired yeah um, because for some reason a lot of people in the church really want other people to go to hell yeah so which is you got to think pretty hard about what yeah. what that means but so we went to this several-day-long conference, mm -hmm. a Richard Rohr conference, yeah. and Rob Bell was a featured speaker, and I found out he was only going to be there for, for one day. And then somebody else was going to fill in to the rest of the conference. Mm -hmm. And Sherry or my son said, and, and who's that going to be? And I looked at the program, and I said, ah, some woman. Whose name is? Ilya Delio. Yeah. Who has become one of your greatest <laughs> Absolutely. teachers. But, so. it's, but it does reflect the sexism, unconscious sexism sure. on my own part. Well, I think that, you know, that, you know, for me, it's some of the ways that I've had to examine unconscious racism. Just, just ways that I have in interpreted things in my worldview that are seen very much through a white lens, right? That, that I didn't see through other lenses. I'm still unpeeling a lot of that. But it, yeah, I think we all are. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, I, and also how one internalizes sexism. What I believe about myself and my capacity, one of the interesting conversations that, that has come up with one of my advisors in my program is 
how often it is the female students who say, I'm not sure if I'm smart enough to do this. Hmm. An, an anxiety that I have struggled with to some degree. And it's my husband who's like, of course you're smart enough. You know, but I, but he's, my advisor says, you know, I hear some more female students say that than male, for sure. And so one of the things that we ended with last week yeah. was just asking people to be aware yes. of how patriarchy shows up in your life. Yeah. And then, you know, I mean, even in order to talk about healing, we have to deal with uh, patriarchy, hierarchy, and dualism, right? Even the dualism of, um, as we talked about last week, masculinity, that you're all masculine and I'm all feminine. That's a dualistic view of the human person. But to see it as holism that we contain and mirror aspects of both is necessary. And hierarchy, I'm not going to say that there isn't a need for leadership and that, there, that some people aren't more natural leaders and some people aren't more natural sort of doers, that that inevitably happens, but the abuse of power or the abuse of our hierarchical appointment is what damages healing, what damages relationship. To be an authoritarian, there's a model of parenting, as you know, to be a permissive parent, an authoritative parent, or an authoritarian parent. The authoritarian parent says, you do it because I say so, and you don't need no more questions. The authoritative parent discusses, talks, talks with, explains, teaches. The permissive parent usually is, the word speaks for itself, permissive, no boundaries, no structure, right? So in, if we could apply parenting strategies to institutions and aim for that sweet middle spot, the authoritative, then we could dismantle hierarchy in a damaging way. So my way of thinking about this from a systems point of view in psychology is that in any system, like a marriage mm -hmm. or family, somebody is always in charge. That being in charge is something that must um, have some common understanding among everybody who's in the system right. and be okay. Yeah. Not just something that somebody seizes mm -hmm. and says, well, I'm, I'm in charge here right. and you don't have anything to do about it. Yeah image of this is a really high functioning basketball team. Yeah. Well, you think about, you know, the greats like the, I hope I get this right, the 97-98 Chicago Bulls, Michael Jordan's last season. Yes, anyone, Josh? Yes, please. I wish you were here. Um, and, you know, that, that team danced. Right. They choreographed, you know, uh, the same with like the Duke basketball team, which has had such a long, long history of success, right? And, um, when, and, and when somebody screwed up, yeah. they didn't stop the game and yeah. criticize the person. Right. They yeah. put them up and slap them on the butt and get them back in the game <laughs> because they were focused on yeah. a team effort of winning, but they yeah. also had a captain. Yes, yeah. yeah. Again, the natural leader born out of traits right. that, that one excels at, right, as opposed to an automatically given role. And to me, the best families work, and you know, we're all trying to figure this out in my own family. I'm... I'm way bossier than I need to be sometime. And I remember once you telling to me, to, saying to me that the first six rules of a family are unspoken. They're silent. We just sort of observe and agree to certain things. And, and sometimes that's who's in charge, who's the boss. Well, the first six rules in systems are really not unspoken. They're unconscious. Yeah. 
We yeah. we we're not aware of them, but we operate by them operate anyway, as if as if they yeah. were. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's examining what have I put in place? What sort of dependences on dependencies on me have I put in place just by operating without communicating? It was you know? it, it was like a, a an atomic explosion went off in my brain when uh, and this is decades ago. I I got it. Uh, that there was an unspoken rule in my family that I didn't know, mm -hmm. but I obeyed. Mm -hmm. And that was that the sons in the family do not talk to the father, to my dad, about anything of consequence. It all went through mom. Mom was <laughs> like a telephone operator that connected everybody to everybody else, but we didn't talk directly to my dad. That's so it. interesting. And some of that is by the role of being primary caregiver, which still is most often women. Uh, I, I think I was on the phone the other day with you when kids come up, mommy, 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 and they come into the FaceTime. And I have to pause and say, you have an entire other parent <laughs> who can answer this question at this moment. And so you're right. Sometimes we have to unshape those rules. But um, you know, this, this God, this all-powerful, sort of omnipotent, all-ruling God is a patriarchal God. And it's the, that is the kind of patriarchy we need to dismantle. And so one of my favorite philosophers, who I've talked to you about before and talked about in here, is Lady Anne Conway, who wrote in the 1600s, probably around the time of the Council of Trent, she died on, in the first half of the 1600s. Nevertheless, she was in that time period. And she was a, a relative unknown. She wasn't schooled, right? Because she was a woman in the 1600s when they weren't allowed to attend school. But she was tutored and she was widely read. And she developed a tutor and mentor relationship with Henry Moore, who began to see some ingenuity in her thinking and really encouraged her to write her philosophy. Her philosophy is, what she, she is one of kinship, is one of interdependence, is one of um, everything matters here, and everything is imbued with some sort of purpose, some sort of spirit, some sort of belonging. And she was a student of the Kabbalah. She studied the mystical Jewish traditions, and she critiqued Descartes. So at the same time Descartes was writing, she was critiquing him saying, you're wrong about this split. You're wrong that spirit is higher than matter. You're wrong that spirit is out there and matter is down here. It's, it all belongs. And you know, I mean, to think that a woman without a pedigreed education was critiquing who later became one of the most influential philosophers of modern times, because we, went, we know which path we took. We took the path of dualism. We took the path of I think, therefore, I am. We took the path of spirit, often equated with maleness, being higher than matter, often equated with femaleness. And she was trying to say, no, there's a union. There's a union between matter and spirit. And all matter is imbued with spirit. I just, I think she's just freaking awesome. <laughs> I, I'm obviously. Until I'm, you, I'd yeah. never heard of her. Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's other people along the way who have taught us to think outside of our context. That, again, I said earlier, there's this thread pulsing, and we just kind of need to pull on those threads. There's black liberation theology, for example, is a um, theory of liberation 
that came about in the 60s and 70s, James Cone, who we've talked about as one of the premier thinkers of that movement. And his theory essentially is that God's activity is on behalf of the oppressed and the excluded. It is not upholding the throne of power. It's on behalf of those who don't have it. Mm -hmm. That's also what we learn about Jesus. Jesus's activity was on behalf of those on the outside. He went to the edges, right? So you know, I think if we think about God as being inclusive and freedom-oriented, we're automatically expanding, possibly healing, notions of God um, that isn't an out-there-above-us kind of God. He, Cone was radical for many, many theologians, maybe yourself included at the time. <laughs> well, I mentioned to you that yeah. in, the, in the 1960s, I had James Cone for a class at Union Seminary and looking back on it, and I, and I told you my experience of him was that he was angry. I would think for good reason. And, and yeah. looking back on it now, and, and also uh, I, I think what, what a pioneer he was, uh -huh. what a courageous man. Uh -huh. Is he still alive? Yes. I think so. Yes. I think so. Yeah. What, what a pioneer and courageous man to stand in a classroom at Union Seminary and teach a bunch of white, sure. privileged. Yeah. So, of course, when one says God is not on behalf of upholding whiteness, the whites are going to feel like, oh, crud. Right. Right? A little bit assaulted because it requires of us to look inside and say, how am I upholding that power to? And that's what he really asked us to do as um, thinkers, especially theologians. He said, we, he said, white theology needs to be dismantled in favor of blackness. In other words, we have to think on behalf of those who have been oppressed and excluded. So um, one of the things, and we will get more into this <laughs> next week, we're just gonna allude to it today. <laughs> Little teaser. One of, the, one of the most valuable things I got from reading Ormuchu's book mm -hmm. was his redefinition of the kingdom of God. Mm. I mean, if you think about the phrase kingdom, mm -hmm. king, patriarchal, mm -hmm. hierarchy, and all of that, Ormuchu says, not a good phrase, mm. not a good phrase. And it's not one that Jesus used. Right. The, the, the phrase that uh, Armuchu suggests is a more accurate translation and intentional meaning of what Jesus meant uh, is a, a commonality mm -hmm. of empowerment. Mm -hmm. And it goes, here's kind of a hierarchical double take on that. <laughs> this commonality of empowerment goes first to those who've been disempowered, right. who've been kept on the edges, who've right. been kept out. Right. That's the meaning of Jesus saying that the prostitutes and the tax collectors are in the kingdom before you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Those on the edges. Yeah. There's, uh, so on another note of books we've been reading lately, and I know you said you weren't feeling quite ready to, to talk about it, but I but finishing Elia Delio's spiritual autobiography, there's a, um, I came to the part where she, where she talks about experiencing freedom in her self-identity and ex therefore experiencing freedom in God. So the, in simultaneously having some freedom around her, her self-image, the image of God became freed as well. It wasn't so binary. It wasn't so out there. And that was her entrance into sort of this cosmological evolutionary 
theology. So she has this radical transformation around sexuality and gender. She talks about how she was brought up in just a very traditional Catholic family where either you got married to a man or you became a nun. (laughs) Those were the only two options. And she experiences in in different relationships of feelings of love and companionship that that were not necessarily sexual, not necessarily non-sexual, but that love existed between two people regardless of gender. And that was a really empowering move for her. So what she puts it into this, I mentioned this earlier, that spirit is higher than body, that spirit is higher than matter. That's an Aristotelian idea originally. That spirit, she writes about how Aristotle equated spirit with maleness and body with femaleness. The body is sinful, shameful, separates from God. Right, But she has this amazing sort of realization that, well, God was incarnational, right? There's an in, there is a, the whole myth of Christianity or mythology around it is that God incarnated. So have yeah. you finished reading her book? I'm on the last chapter. So um, My ta- one of my takeaways mm-hmm. from reading her autobiography, and I'm so grateful she wrote it. Mm-hmm. I wrote her and said, thank yeah. you, and yeah. got a great letter, a oh, great good. email back yeah. from her about that. Um, I think it's safe to say that Ilya Delio is a true mystic. Oh, she's, she's lovely. Yeah, she's amazing. And, and it's, she's in love with God, mm-hmm. and it has a kind of sexual component. Sure. We, you know, what's that um, sculpture of the um, St. Catherine being, having her moment of basically abduction by God? Yeah, I'll, I'll think of it. I can't. Do you know what I'm talking? Is it St. Teresa of Avila? Is that what? Yes, yes. In Italy, it's in the, yeah. And all the golden spears coming Mm -hmm. into her body, kind of taking her out. It's called the transfiguration. Am I correct? But gosh, my art history is stale. (laughs) But um, anyhow, yeah. I mean, I think that that is for people who are called to this kind of life. That is, is the inevitable sort of direction as oneness or marriage to and and her student john of the cross Mm -hmm. the same thing is that he fell in love with the mystery Mm -hmm. and that was his life right yeah yeah it's she has a much more sort of um personal relationship with god than than i have ever had in terms of in her writing i mean i'm sort of you know in awe and in some ways taken aback by it Mm -hmm. this very personal conversation almost but it's, you know, she, but she does talk about that, that in that incarnation of God, God became body. So how can body be less than spirit? And, you know, that translates to all of our bodies. Well, kind of anticipating what we're going to do next week, mm-hmm. um, we're going to talk about um, hearing the call and responding to the call to step into this kind of love relationship mm-hmm. with Sophia. Mm-hmm. And um, as I've been thinking about it and even started doing a little writing about it, um, it's, it's scary for people yeah. because it means um, if I'm going to go on this particular journey, I'm going to have to give some stuff up. Right. Sure. And we don't like to give even up. Even ways of thinking. Uh, and yeah. and, and one would think that, that would be easier than giving up something like drinking. Anything <laughs> that puts me in control. Yeah. 
Yeah, you can go to the next slide actually because that, that's a perfect segue into, I love this quote that was um, kind of given to me sometime before Christmas. The power that governs all dwelt in a small room. While dwelling there, he was holding the reins of the universe. What is this artwork? It's a piece I made in response to that quote. And you painted this. It's a collage and painting, yes. So Wow. Yeah. So when I was thinking of that, these sort of circles within circles within circles that we all came from this sort of womb of the universe, right? And this whole act of creation begins with something that, gosh, I mean, it can only be reconciled to something like birth, right? That the, the light burst forth in the Big Bang, that's a, that's a birth image, because <laughs> birth doesn't happen gently or easily. <laughs> it's a bit explosive, right? So I, I will tell you all that are watching yeah. uh, that uh, when Holly and I are writing these classes or getting prepared for them, we uh, collaborate over Zoom, and uh, sometimes when we're talking, Holly is, and I asked her the other day, what are you doing? You're working on stuff like this. Yes, and that's, that comes later, the one I shared with you the other day. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I kind of doodle, draw, et cetera. To, it helps my mind. That's a wonderful piece. I had no idea that you did that. That's yeah. beautiful. Yeah. Thank so you. see what you want in it, but the, this sort of idea of like embedded circles or embedded holes within a bigger hole. And, you know, there's even in Genesis, the, everything comes from one thing, right? And we have this image of God as a bird brooding over all that God has created. Like, and you use the words like a mother hen, right? Mm -hmm. And you can kind of imagine that from this brooding, there are almost issues like a groaning, right, as things came to be, which also is a birth sound. Teilhard de Chardin equates evolution as God bringing to birth successive stages of life and consciousness. So every successive stage is a new birth. And again, anticipating what we'll yeah. do next week, and one of the reasons I'm really glad you're here is that... Um, when we get into talking about some of the teachings of Jesus that are in the Gospel of Thomas, they are full of this kind of imagery mm -hmm. of a spirit brooding over like um, a hen, mm -hmm. but also protective as a mother would be for an infant. Mm -hmm. and so you know there's fierceness in that too. Yeah. Don't touch my kids. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So, yeah, so you can go to the next one. In so many traditions, there are images of, of women as creators, right, of the feminine being the creative. And you didn't we, do these. No, no, no. These are some that, that what the one of the, um, to my right, <laughs> is the spider woman which is a, a traditional myth in Native American mythology, in African mythology, and even some European mythology where the spider woman weaves universes into being. So this, you know, these, again, the, the act of creation is mother-like, is feminine. You know, again, uh -huh. wanting to help people move away from doctrinal religion, mm -hmm. A teaching in the Christian religion is that the Holy Spirit came to the earth mm -hmm. after the resurrection of mm -hmm. Jesus. 
Holy Spirit was maybe always the, there. The, <laughs> and, and, and this is what yeah. First Nations people uh, know and have known since there have been thinking earthlings. Mm -hmm. The great spirit has always been here. Right, yeah. And that's what I think what so many different mythologies weave together is that there is this great spirit. And, and we can get into a lot of conversations about a preeminent God versus an imminent God that sort of also evolves, brings to bear as the universe itself evolves. And I think that's happening too. But it, it, it's just, I think, to really orient ourselves back to these images are also a face of God. You know, to get away from white bearded guy on the throne and toward an incarnational, imminent, present aspect of God too. So the way that this can heal our, our self-image mm -hmm. is that if we get it, that we're made in the image of God mm -hmm. and that Jesus didn't come into the world, mm -hmm. Jesus came out of the world. As every single other being did. And, and right. that we, if we could adopt our right. identity mm -hmm. as earthlings mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. coming out of Mother Earth. Right, and not just a spontaneous right. sort of. <laughs> then yeah. we might think differently about how we care for this Earth. Absolutely. One yeah. of the things that is a benefit out of this pandemic Mm -hmm. is uh, that the earth is having a little bit of an opportunity to heal. To breathe, you know, you just, you think about just what does it mean to, to conspire, to breathe mm -hmm. with, you know, and we're sort of breathing with the earth a little bit right now. We're not supposed to be breathing on each other, but we're breathing with the earth. <laughs> so, you know, I, you know we, I just think if we're think, thinking about healing or becoming whole persons, we can't exclude this element of our psyche, in this case the feminine that we're talking about, if we are to become whole adult persons. And I think in order sometimes to heal our image of God, we have to ask ourselves, well, what does it really mean to be whole? Which requires us to talk, to have these kinds of conversation. How is patriarchy? How is racism? How is um, hierarchy operating in our lives? in ways that maintain my authority rather than a shared interdependent authority. And I think, you know, one of the things that Teilhard, I, you can tell I'm a bit, I get in these grooves, but that talks a lot about is the, the, the force of love. And when we turn love outward, it becomes a galvanizing revolutionary change agent that love is this dividing I'm sorry, not a dividing force, but a uniting force. I think one of the things I haven't seen in Teilhard yet is sort of that, well, how do you do, how? What does that look like? And maybe we can talk about that at some point. But love is a bit radical. And you know, I think it was Cornel West who, said, who coined or popularized the phrase, justice is what love looks like in public. Right. And, I love the quote. Yeah, and if love were the foundation of social movements, just kind of imagining what would be possible. If love, not division, or if love, not power over, were the galvanizing force behind change, there's, to me, not, there's an unlimited thing that we can do. And that's what I think, going back to Mary Daly, which started this conversation, that's, that's God as a verb. Right. God as a verb is, is doing love and, and loving others and ourselves into wholeness. So Teilhard's quote is, Love alone is capable of uniting living beings in such a way as to complete and fulfill them 
for it alone takes them and joins them by what is deepest in themselves. So love is that deepest thing. Um, there's like so much more we have to talk about. We have well, I, 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 <laughs> yeah. I want, before we're done today, uh, I want to get to that painting that you did. Okay. Is that okay? Yeah, sure. Let's just jump to it. Um, I I've, don't know how to jump. Keep going. Just keep. Um, can yeah. you come back and talk about this next week? Um, sure. Because I'm puzzled about what this means. The Fibonacci sequence. Yeah. yeah. It's a, it's, it's, so I've been thinking about spirals a lot lately. And that leads into the painting, actually. So spirals, and I've learned that it is a feminine symbol. The spiral is a, is a symbol of birth. So while we were yeah. working on, the, on this, this talk, is, yeah. you drew this. You painted I this. I was working on this while, while we were talking or while we were preparing. Now, I want you all to get a really good look at it. Mm-hmm. Because <laughs> I'm going to turn it upside down. Mm-hmm. That's just marvelous. I'm so glad you think so. <laughs> I, just, I love things like that. That's yeah. so creative. Yeah. So that, well, maybe we can talk a little bit about the spiral image next week as we talk about Sophia. But the spiral image to me is that life, death, rebirth cycle. So it's um, necessary in our beings, but also in our thought patterns. To, yeah. to sum this up. Yeah. <laughs> to, to, to try to sum this up. Right. One of the one of the advantages of embracing mm -hmm. the feminine face of sacred mystery yeah. is that it allows us to move away from certainty. Yes. And to live with um, to live in the flow yes. more. To live yeah. with more a sense of of change. I heard Richard Orr say one time that one of the reasons that young mothers are so tired, mm. and you would know <laughs> all about this, I wouldn't. I think middle-aged mothers are they, tired they, too. They, they have so much to pay attention to. It does feel that way sometimes. Because there's yeah. so many changes happening as the infants. It's, it's like keeping track of shoe sizes, keeping track of clothing sizes, keeping track of what, what someone's eating from one day to the next. I mean, these things are just things that sort of get cataloged, like a library card catalog in our brains. I'm not always great at communicating what is going on in here to the others in my household. And that's where sometimes the bossiness comes out. Well, didn't you know that Caleb was a size seven already? You know, <laughs> so, yeah. So uh, here we are at the end. And once again, we jumped over a lot of material. <laughs> so Everyone got it though, right? <laughs> I want to dare some Sunday just to come with none of this. I so keep daring you to do that. But every week you're like, let's prepare. <laughs> so I'm, 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 I'm in respect of both of our five wings, maybe. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so the most radical thing Jesus ever said is, I've met a God and want to introduce you to a God whose rain falls on the just and the unjust. I'm going to translate that into the way that I hear that now in light of reading Armuchu. Mm. And that is, this God carries you in her womb and will never let you go. That's what I get. It's beautiful. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. I love doing you. this with you. It's fun. <laughs> no matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this. You carry precious cargo, so watch your step. And we will see you here again next Sunday. Have a Bye. great week. Yeah.